The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, October the 25th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Rory Stewart has been an academic, a diplomat, an author, a broadcaster, a soldier and a politician. He was a Conservative MP for almost 10 years and served as a minister in a number of different departments in the governments of David Cameron and Theresa May. And he had a ringside seat to the general convulsions over Brexit. And he also stood unsuccessfully for the party leadership in 2019 against Boris Johnson. He now presents the UK's most popular political podcast, The Rest is Politics. And he recently published a new book, Politics on the Edge. It's an insider's account of how politics really works. You're very welcome, Rory. Thank you for having me. That is uh, quite a CV. I mean, reading the book, which is a really terrific read, uh, by the way, uh, looking at it from the outside, I get a sense, and and you kind of touch on this in the book, that it's a it's a, a life story that I would associate more with Victorian Britain than 21st century Britain, all that adventuring. There's definitely a bit of that. And I actually had a, you know, my grandfather was a proper Victorian, born in 1880 and started working in India about 1900. And my father was born in 1922. He's uh, 50 years older than me. So uh, I, I grew up in, a, I think, a world which still had a little bit of that going on, um, reaching back to a, a, a world that feels very, very distant. But I guess as we all get older, um, things seem, <laughs> seem very distant. I've been trying to talk to my children about my time in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I realize now that those things are almost as distant uh, to them as, as you know, the Second World War was to me. Yes, indeed, I'm the same. Well, I have teenage children, and for them, anything before 2004 or so is the is the olden days. I was interested to read um, your father served in the colonial service in Malaya, as, as my grandfather did as well. They might have, they might even have crossed paths in the in the years after the Second World War. But your experience, I mean, it goes back to your father's colonial experience and his service in the foreign service, where you ended up as well, and you also ended up relatively young, in fact, very young, in what sounds like an almost quasi-colonial position, an administrative role uh, during the occupation of Iraq, where at the age of 30, you had responsibility for all kinds of things that, that read like, like a Victorian colonial service official. Yes. Yeah. I was, the, um, I was the acting governor of two provinces in southern Iraq and was responsible for setting up the police force and dealing with uh, disputes between communities and uh, overseeing the uh, building of schools and clinics, uh, the electricity supply, power lines. And it was a very odd type of role. I mean, it, it wasn't a democratic government at all. Essentially, what had happened is the US and its allies had invaded Iraq and they had toppled Saddam and then they hadn't really put anything in its place. So they were running this interim temporary administration with people like me taking full responsibility for trying to oversee what was happening in provinces. But of course, it, there's also an element of farce about it because Iraqis knew perfectly well that they it was their country. They knew far more about it than we did. They often, as you can imagine, ran rings around us. And, you know, there was, I've, I've written a book about it called um, 
occupational hazards in which I try to give examples the many ways in which basically we were continually outsmarted and outwitted. And I would think that I was doing some brilliant plan on sorting out the petrol stations, the oil, and the Iraqis were doing something completely different and I was missing it. And isn't that the nature of the colonial relationship in a way? Do, do you think it was a colonial relationship? Yes, I think so. I think it it was, and I think it was a huge mistake. I think um, in a way that's what went really wrong um, from Bosnia and Kosovo onwards. I mean, I think you go back to the 90s, I think there was a, a moment of optimism that the international community, the US, its allies, the, the UN, was going to be able to bring peace and fix fix issues. And if you remember in the 90s, the, 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 there was so much optimism. There was optimism about Oslo process in Israel-Palestine, optimism, of course, about the Good Friday Agreement, optimism about what had happened in Bosnia and Kosovo, where it had seemed possible to end wars. And most of what we were doing were beating ourselves up for not getting more involved in places like Rwanda, that was decided the responsibility to protect But Iraq and Afghanistan, we took the wrong lessons. We were overconfident, we were hubristic, and we set up these kind of colonial administrations and realized to our cost over 20 years that we were profoundly, deeply unwelcome in those societies and that the US and its allies spent $3.7 trillion in those two places and achieved nothing. There's an argument which has been going on for many years and I think continues to this day about this form of liberal interventionism, almost a kind of a Gladstonian notion, which you, you saw particularly in Iraq, actually, this idea of, of regime change and this, the inevitable spread of uh, Western forms of, of democracy across the world. And critics of that always argued that to some extent it was just, uh, it was just a thin veneer of paint over what was really, you know, the expression of, of, of imperial power um, by the United States and, and and its allies. Do you think that's true or do you think that's unfair? Do you think there was any real idealism underlying it? As with all these things, it's a very complicated mixture. Um, I think that Americans are deeply idealistic people and talking to American diplomats and generals on the ground, they were passionate, I think, and, and sincere about believing in democracy and human rights and being disgusted by Saddam Hussein and trying to want to make a better world, that their flaw was not their ideals. Their flaw was a lack of realism, a lack of being able to see yourself as others see you, a lack of really being able to understand that for Iraqis and for Afghans, they're far more nationalist, very proud of their countries. They don't want to be in a situation where a foreign, non-Muslim military occupation is running their lives. It doesn't really matter what you're doing. I mean, I'd get in these daft conversations where I would say, look, you know, we've done all this stuff in healthcare or we've you know, helped to build these roads. And the answer effectively was we don't care. What we care about is it's that you are doing it, not us. We want to be able to do these things. And so these things, I think, are very familiar from all around the world. I, I mean, look, the British colonial system was horrifying and racist and exploitative, but it also had an extraordinary amount of idealism in it. And it wasn't all hypocrisy. Genuinely, many people were trying to do the right thing and they were working in dangerous conditions without much money, weren't, weren't well-paid jobs halfway around the world. Um, but I think what we need to learn today 
at a time when the international global order is collapsing, I mean, really collapsing. Since 2014, every year the world's become more violent, more refugees, more internally displaced people. The, the, the US and its allies withdrawing from the world has not made the world a better place. So we need to come back to the middle ground. We need to get the balance. We don't want to do these crazy, arrogant interventions that we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. But equally, we don't want to shrug our shoulders and just completely isolate ourselves from the world. Because that way, you end up with, with the horrors that we're now seeing in Ukraine and Africa and now in the Middle East. Following your time in Iraq, you, uh, you you ran an aid agency in Kabul, and you were also working in the United States as, a, as an academic at Harvard, I think. So you had an input into developing policy and discussing discussing exactly the issues which you've, you've been talking about there. And then you got, or at least I think you got, the call from David Cameron, although I don't think David Cameron thought he was calling you. You heard a call which he sent out for, for new blood in British politics, and, and you answered it. Yes, I, I was in America and there had been this expensive scandal. So you remember people spending money on on moats and duck houses and all this kind of stuff. And all these MPs suddenly resigned and the Conservative Party was left with a problem. They were going into an election in 2010 against Gordon Brown and they didn't have enough MPs. So partly in order to get MPs, partly in order to demonstrate that they were serious about um cleaning up politics. David Cameron said he wanted people who'd never been involved in politics before to become politicians. And I was, as you say, a professor in the States at that time. So I took him at his word and I came back to present myself and pretty quickly discovered that when David Cameron said he wanted new people to enter politics, he didn't mean me. He meant Liz Truss, he meant Pretty Patel, but he did not mean me. Why? Why not you? And why Liz Truss and Pretty Patel? What was he looking for that you didn't he, fit the bill? He was looking for much more diversity, and he saw me as a white, upper-middle-class, old Etonian. Now, this, you might say it's pretty hypocritical, given his own identity and background. And I think the, it was a very, very strange. I mean, I think politics is always strange. But I never got the sense that when he was promoting Pretty Patel or Liz Truss, he was really thinking about their skills as ministers. He was thinking about how his cabinet looked, how he could pitch it and present it. He wasn't really thinking of, he was thinking about campaigning. He wasn't thinking about governing, wasn't thinking about running stuff. You were, um, you're pretty critical of Cameron in the book, and I don't get the impression of any great affection either either way, either from him to you or from or from you to him. Although I think later in the book, in retrospect, you recognise that, you know, many of the things which he was trying to do were much closer to your brand of conservatism than, than the direction which the Conservative Party took later. There's a very interesting incident right at the start of your dealings with him, though, where, just as you say, he's looking to diversify the Tory party. And in a way, the element of today's Tory party that people should recognise, which it is very diverse, Diverse, uh, much more so than the Labour Party in its upper echelons, it, it, it seems to be, is down to him. But you enter his office and everybody in there is a floppy fringed, white shirt wearing, old Etonian like yourself and like him. Yes, that's right. It's very strange. I mean, I, I, my sense was that I, it was very shocking for me. I mean, I, I'd been running a charity in Afghanistan. I had 400 people working for me. I didn't have anybody who'd been to my high school. And I walked into his outer office and I found Almost everybody in that room were people who'd been to his school. And I thought, what on earth does this suggest about this person? You know, what on earth? Because these were actually the people who were really running things. They might not have been MPs, they might not have been ministers, but they were his, you know, his chief of staff, his head of strategy, his speechwriter. 
his chancellor's chief of staff. I just thought, this, this is bizarre. There's a couple of things that strike me about it. One is the obvious criticism. You know, yourself, David Cameron, Boris Johnson, um, all went to Eton. Um, Rishi Sunak went to another public school. That this is not a healthy way to run a country in the 21st century to have this 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 very narrow, very narrow slice of society providing providing its rulers. And then the other part of it, I suppose, and you do write about this in the book, is that that has led to a certain form of 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 government in the UK. You know, the 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 elevation of the notion of the gifted amateur that you don't need to be an expert, you just need to be able to carry things off with a certain elan. And clearly that has not uh, worked out very well over the last 10 years or so. Uh, boy, has it not. Boy, has it not. I mean, it's. I'm not sure that it's fundamentally in the end about class, except insofar as the British society is a lot about class. I think it's to do with profound cynicism and lack of seriousness in our society. Um, you're right, there are these uh, public school educated types. Curiously, though, they tend to be more liberal than the people who are really dominating the far right of the Conservative Party now. I mean, the, the, the dominant figures on the far right of the Conservative Party are almost all people who are, um, you know, Liz Trust was comprehensively, went to a comprehensive school. Um, many of them are from working class backgrounds. And Actually, it's those people who are often dominating the Brexit right of the Conservative Party. So it's not, I think, a simple question that you can read um, ideology or political position from your class background. I think the the more worrying question about Nadine Doris is not where she went to school. I mean, she came from a very poor background. She was a nurse. She had a hard life. The question about Nadine Doris is what on earth does she think she's doing going on reality TV shows when she's supposed to be a member of parliament? Why on earth has she attached herself to somebody like Boris Johnson? We might come back to that question of the changing face of the Conservative Party and populism. But just to go go back to, I'm interested in what you mean by unseriousness. What 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 does that actually mean? And is that something that's particularly true of of British politics? I don't know enough about Irish politics, but it's profoundly true of British politics, and I think it's true of American politics. I mean, essentially. It doesn't matter what political party you're talking about. Fundamentally, all they really care about is getting elected and stuffing it to the opposition. And that creates a mindset which is very simplifying, is very tribal, is all about offering easy solutions to complicated problems, all about being hyper-confident. And they spend very, very little time worrying about deeply about the problems of governing, problems of policy. And that's the problem, because when they take off that mask, their campaigning mask, and they sit around the cabinet table, they need to become the opposite person. They suddenly need to care about detail, nuance. They can't be tribal. They have to be objective, not subjective. They have to look at very complicated numbers. I mean, it's really tough running a big country. Running any country is unbelievably tough. I mean, you're responsible for so many dimensions of people's lives. And so... You know, it's at its most extreme with Donald Trump or Boris Johnson, who are, you know, patently, obviously, you know, campaigning clowns who have no real substantive policy agenda. But it's true, actually, for many of the people that you'd think of as more moderate. It's true of Lib Dem politicians, Labour politicians, Conservative politicians. It's a game for them. What they care about is getting promoted. And they're not at all amused 
to sit in the tea room and be asked detailed questions on taxation policy or what we should be doing about adult social care. Your portrait of how politics at Westminster works or doesn't work, maybe more uh, more precise, is really very telling. But I wonder that world that you've just described there. I mean, is that new or has it always been thus? Because the systems have been in place for a long time. The parties have been around for a, for a long time. The electoral system has been around in terms of universal suffrage for more than 100 years now. So is there something that's changed in the, in, in your lifetime, do you think? Yes, I think something has changed. I mean, you're right. There are bits of it that were always there. But I think one of the things that's changed is the way the media and campaigning works. And actually, the the sense of honour and expectation amongst the MPs themselves, there's been a change in the moral character of members of parliament. It, it would not be conceivable for Ted Heath or Harold Wilson to go on Celebrity Jungle or Have I Got News For You. They're not trying to sell themselves as comedians. They had a dignified sense of their own profession. They did think that their job was to think very seriously about policy issues, and they spent much less time thinking about PR and spin and presentation. Now, it was important, but much less important. And if you watch Harold Wilson being interviewed in the early 1970s, it's it's a very serious, thoughtful thing. It's the kind of conversation we're having today. But nobody talks to a politician in the way that you're talking to me today. The expectations are all around taking... I mean, of course, there's always an element of showmanship, always has been in politics, but we're becoming more and more American. This, this, this is stuff which, you know, horrified people about American politics. Uh, and I couldn't believe that Ronald Reagan, you know, became president of the United States. It was an astonishing moment, right? The guy was in... Hollywood actor who'd done literally nothing before he became governor of California. Um, and we thought, I think, in Britain that we were different. And you know, look, there were many, many things that were wrong about the old system. Of course, the old system 100 years ago was much more elitist. There were many more people who went to schools like mine. It was a much cozier kind of old boys club. But they also had a very, very serious, dignified sense their own profession you know, Gladstone was not a joker, and he he would not be conducting himself in the way that most of our politicians conduct themselves today, even though he went to my school. So when you were elected as an MP for, for a constituency in, in Cumbria, uh, you were required to uh, languish on the backbenches uh, for, for five years or so. I mean, you had made no bones about the fact to David Cameron, um, whether he wanted you or not, you didn't just want to be an MP, you wanted to actually have some form of agency, in other words, to be a minister and to, and, and, and to make a difference. And he, I thought, I thought it was very amusing, he told you, he, he you know, scolded you essentially and told you that to be a backbencher was the greatest privilege and that when he stood down as leader, he'd spend, happily spend the rest of his life as a backbencher. And we know he headed for the exit fairly sharpish once he, uh, once he stepped down as prime minister. But you did have to hang around and wait. And it, it, it's very interesting, the nature of what being an MP is now. Uh, try to compare it to the, the Irish example here, where it's a smaller country, obviously, and we have a different electoral system, um, where I think MPs, or TDs in our case, need to be a lot closer to their constituents. But you got pretty close to your, your constituents in Cumbria. Yes, I, I mean, I, I loved my constituents in Cumbria. I was very lucky. I mean, a, a lot of the the joy in, in this book, Politics on the Edge, the positive stuff, is when I get out of Westminster and up to Cumbria. I was dealing with these largest, most sparsely populated constituency in Britain. I have so much admiration for small family hill farms and spend a lot of time with 
with hill farmers. I loved working with communities in rural areas, fixing problems of broadband or building affordable housing. I love the history landscape. I made BBC documentaries about it. I wrote books about it. But it's also worth bearing in mind that being a backbench MP isn't a strange job. You don't actually have a budget. You don't actually have any power. Most of the stuff that happens locally is done by local government. It's done by the local council. And so you're a sort of um, mascot for your constituency. But the things that people care about day to day, planning where the houses are going, fixing out the, fixing the residents, parking, is being driven by the local council. And you can get out in the local newspaper and make a noise about it. But you're not actually doing things. And I like, I, you know, I want to be useful. I want to ask myself at the end of each year, what did I actually achieve? And the truth is that as a backbench MP, my achievements were limited. I built a lot of relationships. I built a lot of friendships. I Hopefully I helped a number of individuals who came to my advice surgeries and were able to write letters to the government and help them with individual constituency problems. But I wasn't able to get done the kinds of things that I'd been able to do in previous bits of my life. It wasn't like running a charity in Afghanistan where I felt week by week, you know, I can see buildings going up, we're getting a school going, we're getting a clinic going. But you stuck with it and you were re-elected in the... Uh in the 2015 general election, which led inexorably, I think, to everybody's surprise, including to David Cameron's, to uh, uh, to the Brexit referendum the following year, because nobody anticipated that the Tories were going to actually win a majority, and everybody thought that the Liberal Democrats would, would stop such a referendum taking place. But the referendum happened, and as we know, it passed. You were uh, a Remainer. And an interesting kind of reference in the book, you, you, you sensed the swell of pro-Brexit sentiment in your own constituency as the referendum as the referendum approached? I did. I did. And it was difficult. I mean, my constituency voted Brexit. And as you say, I'm a Remainer. And it was a, it was terrible for me because I felt that particularly the impact on small sheep farms was going to be catastrophic, that the way that the Brexiteers was talking was all about trade deals with Australia and New Zealand. And goodness gracious me, even Argentina or the US, agricultural producers who would wipe out our small family farms. And yet many of those farmers were also voting um, for Brexit. So I felt really, once the result came through, that my duty was to try to find a compromise, try to find the softest Brexit that we could. So I pushed very hard for a customs union model, particularly because I was worried about the borders in Ireland. It struck me that if we could remain in the European Union customs union, and not start signing trade deals with other countries, we'd be able to let goods cross the Irish Sea and cross the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland much more easily. And it, um, so initially I got hard behind Theresa May's deal, which was trying to do some of that through an instrument called the backstop. And finally, I just came openly out and said, what we need is a customs union and came very close to getting that through Parliament. I was defeated by three votes in the end. Because one of the ironies of that is that in advance of the referendum, many of the people calling for Britain to leave the European Union said there was no question of leaving the customs union or the single market or any of that, that none of these things would would be affected whatsoever. I mean, the, the way all that turned on a dime still amazes me. It, amazing. And, and of course, it caught me unawares because I took literally what they'd said. And I hadn't realised that they were just bullshitting. They, in the end, the logic of their position was nationalistic. 
They wanted to make no compromises. They wanted to have nothing really to do with the European Union. They weren't prepared to accept any jurisdiction of the European court. They weren't prepared to accept any free movement of people. They didn't want any restrictions on trade deals. So who knows what they were talking about when they said they'd be happy with a single market and a customs union. And what do you think they thought? I mean, you mentioned Ireland there. What do you think they thought about the the Northern Ireland problem before Brexit, if I may put it that way? Well, I think it's heartbreaking. I I think many English... MPs in particular, thought about it very little. But the most uh, mystifying thing for me was, of course, the DUP, because they were the swing vote on things like this customs union vote I was trying to bring through. And it seemed to me self-evident that a customs union would be better for Northern Ireland, and that actually leaving the customs union was going to cause huge problems, going to have to put a border somewhere. And wherever it put a border, it was going to cause problems for the communities. And the conversations I had with Ian Paisley Jr. and other members of the DUP were completely bewildering because, you know, he's not he's not daft. He understood entirely the logic of what I and many others were saying. And yet they wouldn't move. And I don't know what it was. I mean, I began to think they just didn't like the language of compromise. That there was something sort of cultural, which was just making them think the more I said, you know, can we find the middle ground here, find a soft Brexit, we compromise, the more suspicious they got. And they liked the style of Boris Johnson. The fact that he was lying to them, you know, also was sort of evident to them. I remember saying to them, you cannot possibly believe this man when he says he's not going to put a border in the Irish Sea. That's the only solution he can produce. And they'd say to me, oh, yes, Rory, we know Boris from old, don't worry. But in the end, they sort of believed him. I suppose the reality is that the DUP has, at its core, in its root, in its history, had always been a highly Eurosceptic anti-EU party, back to the rhetoric of, of Ian Paisley in the 1970s and the 1980s, had grudgingly entered into the, the second iteration of the, of the Belfast Agreement with the St. Andrews Accord, but was never signed up for any of those things. So there is a sort of, a, in a little bit like the way you were talking earlier on about people Iraqis saying, well, the roads are all very well, but we still don't want you here. That was the kind of the emotional core of the DUP was bringing it in that direction. Exactly. And I think this is part of the problems of politics, which is that it's all very well operating on a kind of technocratic, superficial level, thinking that you can fix everything just by making rational arguments. Or, But, but there is deep emotion, deep identity, deep communities, deep histories. And look, I mean, you know, I'm talking to you now. Politics on the Edge is is my attempt to try to describe where we've got to in, in politics in democratic countries. But if you look now at um, some of the problems we're facing elsewhere in the world with, yeah, I mean, democracies like Israel dealing with whatever we describe that Hamas government as in, in, um, in Gaza, but the sense that Democratic or not doesn't matter. I mean, you know, I, I, yes, there are votes in in Israel, but what's really going on there is communities that cannot see past their current situation. I mean, it, 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 if I if I extend it, maybe this is um, too much of an extension, but look, there is a logic on the two state solution which should be compelling, which is to say to Israeli settlers, where do you think this is going to end? I mean, what, what are you doing? How can you possibly keep doing these settlements? 
what are the Palestinians going to do if you keep fragmenting and destroying any chance of them having a state? Where does this end? What is this thing going to be, right? But you can't really have those kind of questions at a conversation. It may be that, you know, if you ask ChatGBT, it would say to you, clearly the solution is a two-state solution and there has to be contiguous Palestinian territory and the settlements need to withdraw. But how on earth do you get that? And how do you get that through the politics? I mean, this book's called Politics on the Edge. It's about politics. Part of the problem in Israel is that the prime minister needs these very sinister figures like Smotrich and Ben Gavir in his coalition so he can be in power, so that logic doesn't really come into it. So there's absolute, you know, harsh political, real politic, which you're talking about as well. But then there's something, there's something of the irrational always under, you know, under underlying politics too, isn't there? I think just listening to you talking there, I'm thinking of, I don't know if you saw reports earlier this week, your former Conservative Party colleague, still an MP, Steve Baker, who is a, a Brexit ultra, who is now a junior minister at the Northern Ireland office, interestingly enough, and was speaking in Ireland uh, earlier this week. And he said two things which I thought were fascinating. One was that there should have been a super majority requirement for the Brexit referendum, i.e. it should only have been passed with a 60% yes, which means it wouldn't have happened. And the other one was that the same supermajority requirement should take place should there be a referendum on Irish unity, which of course is not what the current uh, Belfast Agreement allows for. What what do you make of all that? He's an interesting, uh, interestingly volatile yeah. figure, Steve Baker. Yeah, no, I think he's fascinating. And I, I think, look, I, I mean, obviously the, the first thing is to hold my head in my hands and go, oh my goodness, I can't possibly believe this guy can be saying this after he campaigned for Brexit and exploited a 52% victory to now say it should have been 60%. Um, But I also want to strangely give him credit for thinking and being prepared to change his mind. I mean, he must be, you know, he's a smart enough guy to be aware that what he said can sound very embarrassing and he'll be mocked for it. And he said it. And I think he's probably right. I mean, my instinct is that you can't change the whole direction of a country on a 52-48 vote. I felt that with Brexit. It's too narrow. It's too divisive. I would have felt that with Scotland too. I mean, Scotland, Scottish independence was supposed to be done on a supermajority in the 70s. That's why it didn't go independent in the 70s. And I think this kind of constitutional change cannot be done just on a simple majority or should not be done on a simple majority. But he's a very, very odd messenger for that, given his history. You write in the book about your your campaigning against Scottish independence. It's very heartfelt. You're a Scot yourself, obviously, and I can sympathise with 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 that position. That's a very valid position, and it's the one which prevailed in in Scotland on the day. The situation in Northern Ireland is somewhat different. It's not about a um, a, a constitutional debate about the UK's place within the European Union, and it has a very different valence from the debate yeah. in Scotland, well, obviously, <laughs> and the idea from the nationalist perspective, I suppose, or or even a broader pro-unification perspective, should that ever emerge in the future, that a minority should have a veto over constitutional change would cause all kinds of difficulties. Oh, it'd be, be, be horrifying. I mean, I think, um, you know, what, whatever the rights or wrongs of debates about supermajorities, you've got to take the history into account. And you can't promise people that they can do it on a simple majority and then change the rules. Or at least if you do that, you are taking enormous political risks with communities. So I think there's there's the sort of theoretical question, if I were teaching a class and people say, do you think referendums should be done on a simple majority or a supermajority? I'd say a supermajority. If you're asking me whether it's remotely acceptable for the junior Northern Ireland minister to suggest that they're going to change the rules around what it takes, 
that seems to me to be incredibly politically provocative and dangerous. What about referendums as a whole? I mean, they, they have a different kind of role in Ireland because they're uh, because of our written constitution um, and they're they're required. Uh, at least the Supreme Court has dictated that they're required in all kinds of different ways. Very different with the unwritten constitution in the United Kingdom. So they're uh, they're more advisory, I suppose, in terms of their constitu- well, constitutional that, position. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean. Maybe theoretically, in yeah. practice, I get not confused at all. between plebiscites yeah. and referendums. They sometimes no, no, look so, a little so, bit so, more so, like so plebiscites there was, there was, to me. There was a very, you know, there was a theoretical argument after the Brexit referendum that it was advisory, but people need to think about the politics of that. Every member of parliament, with very few exceptions, signed up to that referendum. Every member of parliament promised during the campaign they would respect the result. If the majority of the British public in a referendum on the rules in which it was written, votes to leave the European Union. And then you turn around and say, actually, it was just advisory, and thanks a lot, we're not going to take your advice. I mean, you, you've basically created a constitutional crisis. No, that would, be, that would be completely politically unacceptable. But it's just, and, and, it, it, and lawyers, I may be dancing be, on the edge of a pin here, but it is yeah. different from something which has constitutionally mandated to happen yeah. once but the people have voted We don't have it. a constitution, mm. really. Mm. I, mean, I mean, people talk about an unwritten or uncodified constitution, but the, the basic rule of a constitution of the kind that you've got in Ireland or the kind that people have in the United States is that constitutional law is different to normal law. So that in order so that there are certain kinds of things that can't be done by a simple majority in parliament. You need a special procedure. Could be a referendum, a binding referendum, could be a two-thirds vote in parliament. But Britain isn't like that. Parliament is still entirely sovereign. And one of the reasons I rebelled and ended up spending five years on the back benches, and Boris Johnson tried to abolish the second chamber, tried to abolish the House of Lords uh, on a 50 plus one vote in the House of Commons on a rainy afternoon in the same way that you'd impose a VAT on Cornish pasties. You would not be able to abolish the second chamber of a parliament in any country in the world without a proper constitutional procedure. But we don't have constitutional procedures in Britain because in the end, parliament is still sovereign. I suppose the reason I ask this about the referendums is that you know one of the one of the things I take from the book is that there's a crisis of representative democracy, and one of the questions that begs is, well, are there things, perhaps somewhat technocratic things, you can do to change the mechanisms to allow them to work better? There's a lot, a lot of angst in the United States, for example, about the way in which their more than two hundred year old constitution doesn't seem to be working for them anymore in in all kinds of ways. But the fact is, isn't it that? All these trends, populism, you know, distrust of politicians, they seem to be happening in most countries, regardless of what kind of political system they have. That's exactly right. And um, I think we should be very, very careful always in thinking that there are simple structural solutions to the bad behavior of politicians. There are impressive constitutions in the US, in India, in Ireland, in France. In Israel, although in Israel it's an uncodified constitution again. I mean, the Israelis tend to say they don't have a constitution because they've got a constitution like Britain. Um, but you have to, in the end, rely on the goodwill of of your politicians. I, I, this is something very important that we've lost, something that was important to Aristotle and Cicero and would have been self-evident to anybody in the 19th century, early 20th century, that if you don't have good people going into politics, they can screw anything. doesn't matter what the rules say. I mean, Boris Johnson, you know, 
lies to Parliament. People say, you've broken the ministerial code. He just rewrites the ministerial code. He said, well, now I don't need to resign because I've rewritten the ministerial code. I mean, the, things become mad and your constitution can't protect you. And it becomes um, problematic uh, to think that you can do it simply by strengthening your judges, for example, because then you have other forms of constitutional crisis. That's what's been happening in Israel. Then the populists target the judges. I mean, but still, so two things. Firstly, we need better politicians. Secondly, I think in Britain particularly, we could do much more decentralization, take power away from Westminster, get it down to a much more local level. I want to use much more citizens' assemblies, much, much more use of citizens' assemblies in Britain. I've, I've been impressed by how they've been used in Ireland, and I think we could learn from that. A key point in the book is you stand for the Tory leadership in 2019 when... It- the whole post-referendum crisis is really at its height and Theresa May's uh, government is 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 falling apart. And uh, two things I'd say about that for listeners looking forward to look forward to reading the book. One is you, you are disappointed uh, not to win. But the second one is you are absolutely devastated to lose to Boris Johnson, who listeners will have already gathered does not uh, does not rank very highly in your list of preferred politicians. No, no, that, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I didn't... Um initially want to run. I wasn't ready to run. I hadn't got a campaign. I hadn't got money. I, you know, it was very late in the day. And I was assuming that somebody from what was called the one nation tradition of the Conservative Party on the left of the Conservative Party would run. Probably not Ken Clark because he was getting too old, but maybe somebody like Amber Rudd. And then it turned out none of them wanted to run. And I felt it was very important that we tried to fight for a vision of the Conservative Party that I cared about. And I come from the centre-left of the party, and I wanted to try to argue for those things, argue for our vision on progressive environment, climate policy, argue for our vision on social justice, argue for a softer Brexit, argue for being more generous in international aid. So I brought that together, and then I found myself... um, increasingly feeling I'm not really right fighting just for the left of the Conservative Party. I'm fighting an existential fight against Boris Johnson, who is a terrible human being, and it's going to be a terrible prime minister. And I could not believe that people voted for him. I mean, I, one of the things that kept me going through the campaign is the British people, in the end, are sensible people. They are never going to choose this clown when push comes to shove. They, they cannot see this guy as being a suitable prime minister. And of course, they did. Why was that? I think... Our world has changed. I think people don't trust any of us anymore. I think they wanted to throw him like a hand grenade against the system. I think all the kinds of things that I would want to sell myself on, people thought this guy, you know, my style of politics, yeah, some people like it, but there's a lot of people out there who think that the way I talk is boring, elitist, too technocratic, pious, and they wanted a bit of fun. And anyway, they think we're all a bunch of crooks. This is something that Boris Johnson exploits. He said, um, uh, I'm the only person in politics, he said, who understands that everybody thinks politicians are a schmuck and I'm open about being a schmuck. And strangely now then, we've ended up now with two leaders of the two main parties who are essentially rather dull technocrats. But before we got there, before we get to that, the interregnum, lest we forget, the very brief, uh, almost the briefest ever premiership uh, uh, of, of Liz Truss, who is a minister you worked for in uh, in your time in, in, in government. And you have some interesting perceptions on Liz Truss, uh, what happened to her. I, I, 
I'm still baffled by the phenomenon of, of Liz Truss, more so than the phenomenon of Boris Johnson, which I think you can see happening in other countries with yeah. similar sorts of political leaders. Well, yeah, what does Liz, Liz Truss represent? Well, Liz Truss is even stranger. She represents a sort of Margaret Thatcher tribute act. I mean, Liz Truss, I think, as you say, is more bizarre than Boris Johnson because she doesn't have any of that sort of charisma or clowning or uh, appeal. I think she was a sort of bizarre conservative tribute act to Mrs. Thatcher. And she managed in a very minor time against an unusual candidate. Rishi Sunak was unpopular with a lot of the party. He was a very new MP. He'd only come in in 2015 to suggest that she had this sort of radical low tax vision. And she'd been talked up by the Daily Mail and the Telegraph, which should never be underestimated, the impact the right-wing media can still have. So, um, no, I think I think that that's right. And what a catastrophic choice that proved to be. And so a lot of... Uh political analysts now look at that moment of what happened last year and they they compare it to what happened to uh, John Major's government when Britain dropped out of the ERM in the early 90s, that essentially the fate of the Tory party at that stage was sealed. And it it certainly looks like that to judge by both opinion polls and recent by-elections. Do you you think Keir Starmer is inevitably the next prime minister? I think so. I think he he's going to be the next prime minister. I mean, there was a small possible window for Rishi Sunak to say, look, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss uh, were useless. I apologise profoundly for them. I'm kicking out them and all their allies and I'm charting a completely new government. But he had inherited a situation in which she had done something so catastrophic to the economy so quickly that the Conservatives' basic brand, which was economic competence, had been wrecked in 40 days. And then, of course, he found himself in an environment of high interest rates, high inflation, sort of anemic growth, creaking public services. So I I don't know that I would have been able to do much better than he did. I mean, I might have tried to be a little bit more idealistic about it. I think it's a mistake when you're in a losing position to try to appeal to the far right of the Conservative Party and start watering down our climate commitments or making radical anti-immigration statements. I don't think that's helping him. But I think it was probably unwinnable for him anyway. So is Sunak's job then to prevent a wipeout at the next election so that whoever his successor may be may have a chance of getting in at the election after that? I think that's that would be the best hope for the Conservative Party. I don't think he can feel that that's what he's doing. I don't think it's possible actually to lead a party and admit to them or even to yourself that what you're trying to do is minimise damage. He has to go in pretending to himself that he can win, even though he can't. So last question then, Rory, if you wouldn't mind. Um, Keir Starmer looks set to be the next prime minister. As a centrist and as somebody who has written arguing that for a reinvention of centrism, uh, for for a new generation, I suppose, after its collapse uh, following the years of, of Blair and Clinton, when you look at Keir Starmer, is he the kind of centrist that you're talking about? Yes, I think Keir um, has a loss of that. But I'm worried that for centrism to really recover, it needs to be more than Keir Starmer. And he's lacking, I think, three things which really matter. Uh, one of them probably he's stronger at. Maybe he's lacking two out of three. One thing he's he's reasonably good at is bringing a sense of moral character back to politics. I think that's important. And he's he's made it clear that he distinguishes himself from people like Boris Johnson on the basis of being more serious. I I, I like that. 
But I think the two things that he's lacking are firstly, what Aristotle would have called pathos or emotion. I think he's not a great communicator. I think he needs to learn to have a bit more of a sense of humor, a bit more of emotion. He needs to appeal to people's hearts as well as their heads. He needs to lead in that way. But the most serious thing that he's lacking is what Aristotle would have called logos, the kind of thinking, rational part. And he's not laying out policies. There's nobody listening to this program who will have any idea what Keir Starmer's economic policies are, although he's certain, almost certain, to be the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. He doesn't really have anything to say about how he's going to fund public services, about how he's going to get economic growth off the ground, about what he's going to do about the crisis in our criminal justice system, what he's going to do about international policy. And the centre is only going to be able to take off if it can combine moral edge, an ability to communicate, and a clear, logical vision of what policy should be to make the world a better place. Is there any possibility that that's tactical, though, that he doesn't want to give hostages to fortune and to the Tory press, which you mentioned earlier, too too early? Or, or do you think that there it, are no ideas there? I think it's possible that it's tactical, but my fear is that how people campaign is how they govern. It's quite rare to see somebody campaign in a vacuum, in a vacuous fashion, and then come in and do an incredibly rigorous, clearly detailed, bold bit of governing. can be done. I mean, people argue that Fujimori in Peru was an example of this, but it's a pretty, pretty fringe thing. And I'm a bit doubtful whether Keir Starmer will pull it off. A very last question for you. Are you optimistic about the political future of the United Kingdom? Yeah, in the end, I, I do have a sense of grounded hope for the United Kingdom, for Ireland, for France, for the US. I do think that we are mature, thoughtful democracies. Our populations have never been so educated or healthy. I cheered up by the fact that Biden defeated Trump. I think he'll probably defeat him again, that Macron defeated uh, Le Pen, and that Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak, whatever you think of them, are a hell of a lot better than Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn as leaders. So yes, I, I, I have a form of grounded hope. And in a sense, Politics on the Edge, this book is about laying out some of the horror, some of the things that are badly wrong, but hopefully as a way of encouraging people to fix them. Rory Stewart's book is called Politics on the Edge, a memoir from within. It is published by Jonathan Cape. Rory, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you again. Bye-bye. And that's it for today. Thanks very much to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We'll be back with you very soon indeed. Until then, goodbye and thank you for listening.